We are going to have a look at this whole idea of adoption, and if uh, Stephen can bring up the first one. All right, I'm going to ask you the question, what is adoption? And you are going to answer. So, what is adoption? Adoption. Okay, I just, I love this, this doctrine and this teaching. By the way, when, when Christians say, oh, I'm not really into doctrine, I'm into the practical stuff, you will never ever get more practical than this kind of stuff. And, and I love when we've been looking at these doctrines, the discussions that people have. Oh, and by the way, I need to clear up something from last week. Uh, it's really good that people are discussing, and one of the discussions that went on last week was about justification, and it was a question of whether justification, when God makes us right with Him, is that something that goes on progressively, or is it something that happens once for all? And... Um, the, the way the discussion went. Let me just answer it by saying it's something that happens once for all. We're going to look in a couple of weeks' time at something called sanctification. That's progressive. But justification is when God says you're righteous, you're regarded as holy in His sight, and that's it. It's once for all. You can't be partially justified. And it's the same with this teaching about adoption. You don't sort of become part. I mean, the, the children up at the front Emma Jane could never be part my daughter, okay? She either she is or she isn't. That's it. There's, there's no way that it can be any other way. And you can't be kind of part a child of God. You either are or you're not. Um, let's go on to have a look at the two questions. How do we become children of God? And the second one, what are the benefits of being a child of God? Now, just think about those as, as we go on, because that's what we're we're going to answer. We're, we're not going to split into groups just now, but let's go on to the next one. Two sonships. There are two ways that you are a child of God, okay? And this is pretty important because there's a sense in which everybody here is a child of God, and everyone that walks past this building is a child of God. There's something that we call the universal fatherhood of God. And the first way is by creation. If you go to Acts chapter 17... If you've got a Bible, it's on page 1,114. Acts chapter 17 and verse 28 says this. This is Paul speaking, and he's talking about God, and he's talking to people who are not Christians, and he says, For in Him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. In other words, we are His children. Now, there's a sense in which every human being, it's right to talk about every human being as being a child of God, and that is by creation. To some extent, we are, we are all created by God. He obviously uses secondary means and so on, but <coughs> by nature, we are children of God. Now, more than that, as we saw when we looked at stuff earlier, it Human beings are created in the image of God, and that is very, very important when we're dealing with uh, one another. So, in one sense, it's possible for someone who's not a Christian to speak of God as their, their father, but 
it, it really actually is not enough because there has been an estrangement. And in John chapter 1, verse 12, this is the second way we become children of God. There are two different ways of being children of God. One is in a general sense, and the other is in a particular sense. And the particular sense is in John 1, verse 12. It's page 1063. It says this, Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. So, there's two ways that you can be a child of God. One is you are a child of God by creation, but there is a far deeper and more meaningful relationship in terms of adoption. Now, that's difficult for us to grasp because a lot of us work on the assumption, you know, a, a child is adopted, and sometimes in school, the pe- people don't want to know. We don't want to know that we don't want people to know that we're adopted, as though being adopted was a really bad thing. But in, in, in biblical terms, it's a great thing. It's a great thing that God has done. And we're going to look at that. Let's go on to the next one. Adoption, who is it for? This is God adopting us. Who is it for? Number one, it's for all the peoples. First of all, it was for the Israelites. Romans 9 verse 4, theirs is the adoption as sons. When you read in the Old Testament, it is the story of God adopting this particular nation. Now, He did so not to exclude others, but so that that nation would be a blessing to others. But nonetheless, it was particularly focused on the Jewish people. Then you go to Acts chapter 10 and verse 35. In fact, I'll read from verse 34. This is Paul, uh, Peter speaking to Cornelius, page 1104. He says this, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear Him and do what is right. God does not show favoritism, but accept men from every nation. God's adoption is for all peoples. It's a big, big thing about Christianity. By definition, you can't be a Christian and be a racist because being a racist means that you think that your race is superior, you're prepared to look down on other people, and so on. But God's adoption is for all peoples. It's for people from every different background. A lot of the times in the Bible, when you come across the word, the world, it's used in different ways, but one of the ways that it's often used is to mean people from every different kind of background. So, God adopts people as His children who come from all different backgrounds. Second thing there is it's for all genders. 2 Corinthians 6.18, I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Okay, now we have a bit of a problem in the Bible and in the translations that we use because you'll often read the term sons, and you'll read about men and sometimes it looks as though women are excluded. And if you were an ancient, not ancient, that's wrong, if you were a, a Jewish religious person from a long time ago, and actually if you were, in, in some cases, some of the early church fathers discussed this and talked about it, there was certainly a real sense that women were almost not quite human and certainly inferior. 
There's a Jewish prayer that we will not pray that goes, Lord, I thank thee that thou hast not made me a woman, a Gentile, or a dog. And um, we don't pray that here. We're not going to pray it because it's not biblical. It's entirely wrong. But if, you were, if we were in a synagogue, as they would have had it in Jesus' day, we would have had uh, the women, you would have been up in the balcony there, making tea and coffee. No, having tea. You'd have been up in the balcony. Things haven't changed. You'd have been up in the balcony, and the men would be down here doing the worship. Women were excluded in lots and lots of different ways. Now, that the way the Bible uses language, very often when the term man is used, it, it, it's a non-specific term. We don't, we don't have that in our culture. Um, but in the Bible, it is. It, man will often mean men and women. There are some times where it's used in a, in a specifically, just specifically for male. And when the term son is used, it's very generally as well just used often for, for meaning child. And some people, when they translate the Bible, they want to always just put son and daughter or um, human beings or whatever. But you can read through it and you can see what it means. You can see that there are parts where it's quite clear it's a specific gender. But in this, in terms of adoption, just as in creation, God created male and female both equally in His image, so in terms of adoption, God adopts us as His sons and daughters. There are some cultures in which parents would much, much rather have a son than a daughter. That doesn't apply in terms of Christianity. In fact, um, I think most people would recognize that uh, over the years, the majority of people in the church have been women. It's, It's for all genders. That's important. Third thing is, it's purely of grace and not of right. Ephesians 1, 5, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons. That's one of those examples, if you like, which is written to the whole church, to all the saints. He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace. Now, here's the extraordinary thing. Why do people adopt? There are many, many different reasons. But sometimes you will get people in a situation where they adopt because they can't have any children of their own, whatever. And in fact, um, in, well, no, let me just say something about that first of all. That obviously is not the case with God the Father because Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The extraordinary thing about God's adoption as well is this, that, um, well, there's, there's a kind of fad at the moment for celebrities to adopt people. Uh, Elton John, at the age of 65 or whatever, has decided that he wants to adopt uh, a boy from the Ukraine. And he's been refused. Him and his partner have been refused. And there's, uh, I was reading an article which is basically about the fad amongst celebrities to uh, adopt a child. And they do. They go to an orphanage, and they very often, when this guy was writing and saying that they will pick, they'll say, oh, that girl's got lovely blue eyes, or a beautiful boy, or whatever. God doesn't adopt us by looking at us and saying, they are great. I'm going to adopt them because they are great. I'm going to adopt them because I want them. I don't want them because they're ugly and horrible and so on, but I'm going to adopt them. That's not how it works. How it works is this. In a a spiritual sense, we are deformed. In a spiritual sense, we are ugly. And 
yet God adopts his enemies. And there's a great expense involved in that. For someone like Elton John, he can pay a million pounds, it's not a problem. But there's an enormous expense in God adopting his enemies because he has to forgive us for our sin, and that came at the cost of the sacrifice of his own son. I wouldn't do it. If I had the opportunity to adopt somebody else, and in order to do that, I had to sacrifice one of my own children, I wouldn't do it. But that's what the Bible says that God did. So, who is it for? The answer is, it's for all, all those of us who trust and have faith in Jesus Christ. But the answer is, oh, it, it is for everyone. There is an opportunity for everyone. He gave the right to become children of God. Let's go on to the next one. What is it? What, what, what actually is adoption? Well, it's becoming children. It's a change in the relationship. Like Moses was adopted by Pharaoh. It is actually a legal change, but it's a, a relational change. And there are two aspects to that in a biblical sense that I want to talk about. One is we're given the name, and the name is really important. Uh, sometimes Annabelle and I say about those of you who are students that we feel like you're our children. Um, as I say, it took me quite a while to get to that stage, not because you're unlovely, but because I thought I was your age and your brother and sister. And, you know, it's just so that, that for me was it, it was a real crisis when I got to 40 to realize I wasn't 17. And it took me till I got to 40 to realize that. But um, I remember speaking to Alistair I and Kathy in St. Andrews, and Kathy was saying, oh, this, we love the students. They're, you know, they're like our children. And I was, I was thinking, no, they're not. With us, we're like brothers and sisters and so on. But no, it's changed now. We're older, and um, we think that. But if you really were our children, if we were actually really to adopt you, and we're not suggesting this, um, you would take our name. You would become a Robertson. There is only one way you're going to become a Robertson if you're a young lady here, and that's to marry my son. Um, and if there's a woman, if you're a woman, there's no chance of uh, becoming a Robertson uh, unless you marry someone else who's called Robertson. But being given the name is really, really, really important. It's not, um, was it this week? Yes, that names are apparently so cheap in our culture, and the idea of the name is so insignificant that you can change your name by deed poll. Well, that's the other way you could become a Robertson. You can change your name by deed poll but you won't be a real one, um, for 40 pounds. For 40 pounds, you can change your name by deed poll. And apparently this week, there was a gentleman who called himself Motherwell Football Club. Changed his name by deed poll to Mr. Football Club. Motherwell Football Club. Actually, you think that's crazy and stupid, and it is, except he's not as daft as he sounds because he won a prize of 1,000 pounds for being the most dedicated football fan, and on Monday, he can go and change his name by deed poll again back to his original name, and he's 920 pounds up for that, so he's maybe not that stupid. But it, it, it's it, the notion that you can just change, you don't like your name, so you're just going to change it. The name is hugely important in a, in a biblical culture and in most cultures in the world. And here, to be given the name of God is just something that's really precious. Revelation 3.12, to him who overcomes I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on him my new name. You are given 
To become a child of God, you're given the, a, a new name. And you're also given the Spirit, the anointing. Thomas Watson says, when God makes sons, He makes saints. When God makes us His children, you see, we have this idea. This is, this is the difference between biblical Christianity and legalistic religion. Legalistic religion says, if you do this, this, and this, and carry on doing this, this, and this, then eventually you might make it up to here where you might, if you keep going, just make it into heaven. Whereas what biblical Christianity says is that God adopts us as His children, and He makes us His children. He causes His Spirit to live in us. When you or I adopt somebody, if we were to adopt somebody, we, we give them our name, and we can give them our love, but we cannot give them our nature. But that's precisely and exactly what God does. When He adopts us, He gives us His nature. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. It's on page 1222. I'll read verse from verse 3. His divine power, 2 Peter 1 verse 3, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. God gives us His nature. You may participate in the divine nature. Another way of describing it is to say that we are freed, we are taken from a relationship of slavery into a relationship of sonship or being a, a child of the living God. Um, it's, it's great when you have new babies, and I was, just, I was thinking that today with Gareth and Sally, uh, up at the house, and you just watch how parents hold their child, hold their baby, and so on. For me, it's really hard to conceive of God viewing me like that. It's really hard to conceive of God like that, but that's what the Bible teaches. Adoption is when God makes you His children. Let's go on the next one. How do we know? How do we know if we've been adopted? Okay, um, this can cause, a, a, well, it's a really, really good question. I'm going to give you four reasons. The first I want to go into just a little bit more detail. Number one, we know because we are obedient to God. I know that as children, we're, we're rebellious against our parents. Um, we don't instantly do, but most children, and especially these wonderful children who were up the front a moment ago, are incredibly obedient all the time. Fiona, why are you smiling? It's true, isn't it? Most of the time. But you are, actually. I know we have a gurn, and I know we grump, and I know, the, but, but, but obedience is part of, of being a, a child. There's a true childlike obedience because of the love that we have for our parents. And how do we know that we're a child of God? Because we want to obey Him. Now, I'm going to give you five principles about how we know whether there's a real obedience or whether it's kind of a slavish obedience. What's the difference between a childish obedience, or not childish, a childlike obedience of God and a, um, a kind of religious slavery type obedience? Okay, first, 
It's done by a right rule. Isaiah 8.20, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. If we are a child of God, we will love God's Word, and we will seek to obey Him according to His Word. This is our Father's book. He's given it to us for a very, very good reason, and that's how we know if, if we are obedient people, because we obey because our Father tells us. That's how He tells us. It's done from a right principle, secondly, faith. Romans 16, 26, so that all nations might believe and obey Him, that all nations might have faith and obey Him. We obey because we believe. We do not obey in order to believe. We obey because we have faith. It's like, again, if you think of it like a child, sometimes your parent will ask you to do something, and you think, why are they asking me to do that? It may seem a really strange thing, but if you really trust your parents, and they ask you to do something, you do it because you have faith in them. Well, it's the same with God. It's a right principle. I'm obeying because I believe God, because I trust God. It's done for a right purpose, to glorify God, to magnify Christ. I'm obeying because I want God to be glorified. It's done consistently. We know it's a real obedience if we, if we don't just pick and choose the commands of God. Uh, I'll obey that one, but I won't obey that one, and I won't obey that one. You don't do that in your own house. No parent says, well, here are the basic rules of the house. Now, to their five-year-old, they don't say, now you just tick which ones you want to keep and which ones you don't want to do. There's a consistency there. And then there's this interesting phrase that Watson uses called evangelical obedience. And that's what this means, or rather, this is what this means. It means looking to the gospel. It means we love God's law, but we know we can never be justified by it, as we saw last week. We fall short. We know that we will fall short. Fall short. We look to Christ's blood to cleanse. Now, again, think of that in, in the relationship of any of the children here. Fiona smiled when I said about perfect obedience, because we know that, that all of us, all the children here, and all of us older people as well, we're never going to obey perfectly our parents. We're always going to fall short. But I hope that every child works on the basis of thinking, wait a minute, if I do something wrong, I'm not going to be thrown out of the house. That's, that's not going to be it. We look, because we have that relationship with our parents, we look for forgiveness. It's not that we go out and sin, but we but we, and we long to obey, but we know that because of who we are and who they are, we will remain their child. And it's the same when you become a Christian. You will fall short, you will sin, but you look to Christ's blood to cleanse. Okay, please, let's go on to the, the next one. Um, how do we know obedience? Just mention three others. We're not, not going the same detail. How do you know you're a child? You love to be in the Father's presence. You love the presence of God. You love um, praying. You love worshiping God. You know, uh, Psalm 63, I mean, there's loads of them, but I'll just take this one. Psalm 63, 
Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. A child in a normal, healthy relationship, we accept that they're abnormal. We accept that there are perversions and so on. But in in the paradigm that God gives to us, in normal, healthy relationship, a child loves to be in the presence of their father or their mother. And someone who claims to be a daughter of God or a son of God, part of the evidence of that, if you like, is we love to be in the presence of God. And when we are not in the presence of God, we long for that to be the case. It's, it's just, that's just the way it is. It's just something that's beautiful, something that's wonderful, something that we long for. If you find yourself with a longing for being in God's presence, it's a pretty sure indication that you're a child of God. In the same way, if you find yourself not even remotely interested, it's a pretty sure indication that you're not, that it's religion you're interested in or self-obsession or something else. Number three, we have the Spirit of God. Romans 8 verse 14. Let's just look at that, actually, because it's an important verse. It's on page 1,134 of the Pew Bible. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. It's not opposite to the Word. It's not the opposite of what we say when you have the Spirit of God. What does that mean? Well, you become a Christian, being born again by the Spirit of God. But again, there's just, there's something in you. God has changed. God has changed, sorry, God has changed you. God has changed your heart. God has changed the way that you think. Sometimes there's a new nature within you, and sometimes it feels as though there's a battle going on between the new nature and the old nature, but you are a new creation. You have the nature of God given to you. Number four, the evidence is you love God's people. First Peter 2.17, love the brotherhood of believers. Like I said before, taking the language also means a sisterhood, obviously. There are people who say, I love God, but I really struggle with the church. Um, so do I. So do all of us. But I love, again, what Watson says, where he says, we love the beautiful face of holiness, even though it has a scar in it. I think it's great. I think it's great that if you're a Christian, um, not only do you have to, but actually I think it's even greater that you can love me because um, I would like to tell you all the reasons why I'm lovable, but they would all be fairly superficial. And if you got to know things um, really deep down, you, you might find it very difficult. But I just love the fact that because God loves me, and if you're a Christian, you can say this, because I'm a child of God, then other Christians will love you too. It's, that's what makes you love. You see, we tend to think people will love us because we're lovable. People will love us because we're kind. People will love us because we do good to them. People will love us because we're nice to them. 
and we should do good, and we should be kind, and we should be nice to people, and so on. But actually, you're much more likely to be so, and much more likely to be real, if you realize that we love one another because He loved us. We can love because He loved us. That's what makes the church such a beautiful place, because we are ugly people, and by coming to church, you don't suddenly ch turn around and, and change all that. By becoming a Christian, it doesn't completely change all that. But what happens is that because of the new nature that you have, there's this bond that, that binds us together. So again, if you think of that in, in natural terms, no matter what happens, I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to love my children. No matter what happens in the Christian church, you are going to love your fellow Christians. Now, I grew up in a family of five. We fought like cat and dog. Uh, I wouldn't have said that we were the closest family in the history of the universe, but um, there's certainly that. Brothers and sisters, boy, brothers and sisters can really fight. And uh, you, well, you learn that from experience, or if you don't know that from experience, uh, just try babysitting. Even any of the families in this church, I'm sure you'll find that that may be the case as well. They really, brothers and sisters, can fight. Does that mean they don't love each other? No, it doesn't. And in the Christian church, it's exactly the same thing. You will be surprised at how ugly Christians can sometimes be to one another. And some of the horrible things we say, and some of the nasty and whiny things that we do to one another. And it is wrong, and it's not to be excused, and it needs to be dealt with. But I, I would still say, that there is something deeply uh, within us that causes us to love one another. Let's go on just to the last one. Oh, there's one, two more actually. Adoption. What's the benefits of adoption? Great. The privileges of the king's children. You are adopted by God. You are adopted by the king. You have absolute. You are. You are a child of God. Um, on Wednesday here, the Gandhi's grandson is going to speak. And there are lots and lots of people who are going to say, oh, it's Gandhi's grandson, how wonderful, how great. That's why he's being invited to speak. If his name wasn't Gandhi, I don't think he'd be invited to speak. But because his name's Gandhi and he's Gandhi's grandson, and I ha I've fallen for it too, I've accepted the invitation, uh, I'll be here listening to Gandhi's grandson. That's wonderful, you know, because, you know. Now, I mean, it's not even Gandhi's son, it's Gandhi's grandson. I reckon that what you should do for next Sunday or a fortnight's time or three weeks' time is, I think you need to go around and you need to say to folks, listen, you need to come to the chaplaincy on Sunday evening or Sunday morning. You need to come because God's son is going to speak, because the son of God's going to be there and, and see what reaction you get. But it's not a Messiah complex, honestly, it's not, but... It, it's, it's, it's just true. It's just that's the way it is. And I think sometimes you meet uh, a young lady who has issues in terms, if you want to put it that way, in terms of identity and feeling worthless and useless and so on. You know, those issues will need to be dealt with and so on, but one of the greatest things in the world is to be able to say, I am a daughter of the king. I am a child of the king. I am a son of the king. There are enormous privileges, and there are also enormous promises, the heirs of what was promised. You go through the promises that are in the Bible, and they are there, and they are absolute rock-solid guarantees. 
the promises of the king's children. Um, I think at the end we're singing on Christ the solid rock, is that right? On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Just rock solid promises. And then one of the benefits is what I'm calling the praises of the king's children. We have so much to praise God for and to thank God for. I, just, I used to have just a real problem with heaven because I was told that heaven was praising God not just all day long and all night long, but for eternity. And as a child, what went through my mind, and as an, as an adolescent, what went through my mind, and as a student, actually, what went through my mind, was an, this meant an eternal church service. And I really was struggling to think of anything worse than that. And I just trying to grasp, how, how do you praise God for all eternity? What does that mean? And, and it's only as I've come to appreciate more and more what God has done and who God is and the fact that it's kind of in, a, in this relationship of love that you have with God as your Father, that you realize what you are doing. We are, put up there, we are better off than Adam. You'd say, how can that be? Adam lived in a sinless world. Adam was perfect. Yeah, but he was a son by creation. We are a, a son or a daughter by adoption. We have a Savior who died for us. Adam didn't have a Savior who died for him. We do. And there's a sense in which that is such an extraordinary thing that it, it, it causes us, well, it should cause us to praise and to rejoice in God. What are the benefits? The benefits are just so immense that we, we respond in praise. Let's go on to this last one. This is, a, is there one more? No. Oh, I didn't put it up. Okay. <laughs> That's me missing it out. I'm going to read this to you because I love this. Um, this is out, out of something called the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a, a summary, I think, of biblical teaching that, that we hold to in the church here. And I, and, I, and I love this bit on adoption. I didn't quite realize it was quite this warm and pastoral as it is. But this is what it says. Participation in the grace of adoption is conferred by God on all the justified for the sake of His only Son, Jesus Christ. By this act, they are numbered with and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. I love that phrase, the freedom of the children of God. If you're a child, you're free. See, when you're a child and you're in someone else's home, you, you wouldn't normally behave as you would in your own home, okay? Because you don't quite have the freedom. Even, I mean, as an adult, that's the case as well. If I come to your home, I'm not going to flick off my shoes put them up on the chair and start reading your newspaper while waiting for you to make me a cup of tea, right? That's not normally what I do. If I do that, we are really bonding. We've really made it. Don't be insulted if that happens, okay? But normally, as a child, you know, you're told, behave yourself and so on. You, you know, sometimes you meet these picture-perfect families, not here, but sometimes they'll come, you know, and they, they prayed into church, and there's loads of kids, and they're all dressed immaculately, and they've got nice shiny hair, and they never move a muscle, and they're absolutely perfect, and they call you sir, and when they think, and you know, they're just, they're, they're just little house in the prairie, per perfect. And um, I, when I meet families like that sometimes, and how well behaved and everything, I'm just dying to ask them, what are you really like at home? Come into my house and behave like you behave in your own home, just to see how you know, how real all this is. There's no way that you behave like that at home. 
there's a sense in which sometimes people behave. You know, they put on a face and all that kind of stuff. But God says, you're my children, and you have liberty. The liberty and privileges of the children of God. They have His name put upon them, it says. Receive the spirit of adoption. Have access to the throne of grace with boldness. And are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. And as many of you know, I'm sure, Abba was the the term, the Aramaic term for just dad. To call God that was just astonishing. They are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by God as by a father. Yet they are never cast off. For they've been sealed for the day of redemption and so inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. You're a child of God. I'm a child of God. It is something enormously for which to give thanks. Okay, what I would like us to do just fairly briefly is I'd like you to uh, turn your chairs around and um, getting groups of about maybe eight or so, no, not much more than that, just briefly uh, introduce yourselves, and then we're going to spend just 10 minutes praying. Now, how this works is this. You don't have to pray out loud. You're very welcome to pray out loud, but you don't have to. You can pray silently. Um, please don't feel pressured in that way. I would encourage you, male or female, to, to just to pray. And all that we're going to do is we are going to thank God when we pray that we are His children, and then we will bring some requests that we have as his children. You may want to, when you say your name, just if you briefly do it, just briefly mention something you'd like to pray for. Um, I want us to pray for uh, Anne Urquhart uh, in hospital, for example. Um, let's pray for, for others who are ill. And, but there are many different things that we may want to ask God as his children. So just spend about uh, just three or four minutes getting set up, briefly introducing yourself, and then we'll spend 10 minutes in prayer. Can I ask the children to join me upstairs because uh, we're going to just have a wee uh, time of prayer ourselves as well. So if the five children will join me upstairs, the rest of you do that, and I'll be back down in 10 minutes.